0: For a while now, Washington has been wrestling with two big forces shaping technology — social media and artificial intelligence. Should they be regulated, who should do it, and how? Right now, Congress is considering a bill that would regulate how social media companies treat minors — the Kids' Online Safety Act, also known as COSA. Although it has bipartisan support, COSA is not without controversy. Several critics have called it government censorship. And one group, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, says it is, quote, one of the most dangerous bills in years. One of COSA's sponsors is Connecticut Democrat Richard Blumenthal. I spoke with him on Friday about the bill, as well as his newly announced framework to regulate AI. So today on the show, a conversation with the senator about tech, kids, and what role the government should play when it comes to regulating Silicon Valley. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Senator Blumenthal, welcome to the show. Thank you. We are going to talk about two issues, kids and social media and artificial intelligence. I would like to start with COSA, the Kids Online Safety Act. Let's talk about kids and and the internet. There are a number of issues that you have highlighted, body image, self-harm, but but what I really want to understand is the mechanism how this bill works, because it empowers state attorneys general to file lawsuits based on content they believe will be harmful to young people. Can, can you help me understand why the legislation is structured in that way, why it gives so much latitude to state attorneys general?
1: Let me first draw a distinction because you've said that The bill empowers attorneys general, state attorneys general, to go to court based on content. It does not. This bill does not give state attorneys general or the Federal Trade Commission, for that matter, the power to censor in any way. What it does is target the product designs, the algorithms that drive that content at kids. And I think that distinction is very important, Lizzie, because what we're doing here is creating a duty of care that makes the social media platforms accountable for the harms they cause, but it gives attorneys general and the FTC the power to bring lawsuits based on the product designs that in effect drive eating disorders, bullying, suicide, sex and drug abuse, that kids haven't requested and that can be addicted. And if you go back to Frances Haugen's testimony, she was the whistleblower.
0: Yep, the Facebook files.
1: Now Meta. She presented not only testimony, but documents that showed social media companies are aware of those harm. They design their products, those algorithms, in a way that drives content that kids haven't requested. You ask for content on diet and What the child receives is eating disorder content. So I think that's a really important distinction. No censorship, focus on the product designs or algorithm.
0: I hear you, and I I hear clearly the... Noble purpose behind that, and you're right. That is something Frances Haugen brought up. She presented those documents, particularly as it related to teen girls and Instagram. That was, in fact, one of the the sort of stories that the Wall Street Journal did, zeroing in on that particular thing. But I guess I'm trying to understand here: if you are questioning your gender identity, don't you want? the algorithm to show you, say, some more content, maybe trans influencers. And and this is the the question that I think a lot of LGBTQ groups have raised. Uh, The Electronic Frontier Foundation has raised this issue as well, that there might be a distinction without a difference here if a state attorney general in a state that is questioning transgender children says, wait a minute, we don't want the algorithm showing kids that. Do do you understand what I'm saying here?
1: Well, you've raised a number of very important points. First, I would never put my name on a bill that targets or disparages or harms the trans or LGBTQ community. Uh, Second, this bill does not censor content or prevent anybody in that community from accessing content that they request. The bill holds social media platforms accountable for their product designs or algorithms. It's not a Section 230 bill. Hmm. Uh, third, very, very importantly, the bill not only permits, but encourages safe spaces where the LGBT community can access content that is specifically requested. What it tries to prevent is the social media companies from designing algorithms that feed kids content about bullying or eating disorders when they haven't requested it, when they don't want it, and in fact creates a kind of addictive rabbit hole that they go down because the business model of these companies is to create and drive addictive content. The more eyeballs, the more advertising, the more money. And that's the business model that Francis Haugen described so eloquently and powerfully, and that we want to prevent. Uh, and I just have to say that, uh, you know, we've worked with the LGBT community. I'm very proud of the fact that I have a 100% scorecard from the Human Rights Campaign. And we have benefited from the suggestions and ideas that they have provided, and they are often the victims of this kind of bullying and other kinds of really toxic content. So I think that this bill serves the interests of a lot of communities, including that one.
0: I want to play you some audio of your co-sponsor of the bill, Senator Marsha Blackburn um, of Tennessee. This is audio that was recorded in March but was first put online, to the the best that I can verify, and indeed we have reached out to the group that put it forth, released on September 1st, in which she talks about her concerns, but also COSA. I want to play that in full for you. What do you think is the top issue that they should be watching and the top issue that conservatives should be taking action on right now?
2: Well, there are a couple of things. Uh, Of course, protecting minor children from the transgender and this culture and that influence. And I would add to that watching what's happening on social media. And I've got the Kids Online Safety Act that I think we're going to end up getting through um, probably this summer. Uh, this would put a duty of care and responsibility on the social media platforms and this is where children are being indoctrinated they're hearing things at school and then they're getting onto YouTube to watch a video and all of a sudden this comes to them Uh, and they're on Snapchat or they're on Instagram and they click on something and the next thing you know they're being inundated with it Parents need to be watching this, teachers need to be watching, and protecting our children and making certain that they are not exposed to things that they are emotionally not mature enough to handle.
0: So you understand why I played that clip for you, I assume. You know, the, the word indoctrinate has really resonated with a number of LGBTQ advocates, particularly parents of trans kids who hear those sentences and your co-sponsor invoke COSA and say, wait a minute, this this is the unintentional scenario that they are concerned about.
1: Thank you for playing it in full. And let me just be really blunt, Lizzie. I fundamentally and emphatically disagree with uh, Senator Blackburn's position on the LGBTQ community. Whatever Senator Blackburn may say about her personal beliefs, I know what the bill does. I know what the provisions state. We have tightened those provisions to avoid the kinds of harms that were raised by the LGBTQ community. Uh, Working directly with them, the organizations and individuals, was incredibly important to me when writing this bill. Not just to ensure that it can't be misused, but also that it would prevent harms against that community community. And others, because the LGBTQ youth suffer those harms often the most dramatically and deeply. So, you know, Senator Blackburn and I don't agree on everything. In fact, if you look at our voting records, uh, we're a pretty unlikely pair. But we agree on the Kids Online Safety Act that it doesn't target or censor anyone, that it focuses on those product designs or algorithms that repeat and drive content that neither LGBTQ youth nor others really want, but it's in the business interests of social media to drive at them because it is inflammatory or addictive, and they know it is, and it's harmful, and they ought to be held accountable for those harms. And on that point, Senator Blackburn and I agree, holding big tech accountable and making sure that those product designs are done more responsibly. Right now, they're a black box. You and I have no idea what's in them, and neither do experts, because they want to keep them secret. So transparency is very important. Right. That's, that's, that's part of also. the bill.
0: There's independent audits by by researchers and academics. Exactly. I guess I'm curious, like, let's spin forward, you know, a year. If you start to see lawsuits in Missouri, Texas, Florida, based on the concerns that that I've outlined, what will you do?
1: As a former attorney general, I know, in fact, as an attorney general for 20 years, I know very well that the language of the bill, the provisions, are what courts have to apply. Attorneys general may misuse a bill, but ultimately they have to face a judge. And the language of this bill has been tightened. It targets specific harms, eating disorders, bullying, suicide. It does not target or censor content that is sought by the individual. So if an attorney general misuses this language, it would be tossed out by a court. And if not by the trial court, than by an appeals court. And if we have in some way overlooked the need to tighten it further, we can take action.
0: After the break, Senator Blumenthal and I talk about AI and data privacy, areas where technology has advanced quickly and Congress
3: has not.
0: I'd like to switch over to AI. You have another unlikely ally there, Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri. Let's talk about this framework for regulating AI. At a hearing you chaired, uh, you took a strong stance that we need to take a a risk-based approach. And I wonder, what are the risk cases that, that you see for AI? Do you think in terms of the sort of Skynet wipeout humanity stuff or something more narrow that we're seeing more in the present?
1: think that the standards for testing, for example, before a product is released can be designed in a way that takes account of the amount of risk involved. Let me give you a practical example. AI that regulates the temperature in your home. If it's off by a few degrees, okay, you're uncomfortable and you have to go back and reset it. That is a error that has fewer human consequences than, for example, AI that is designed to detect cancer in someone. AI that misses a cancer diagnosis can cause really serious consequences. And likewise, if you have AI that's used in a weapons platform, and we are now beginning to use AI in some of the unmanned aircraft or unmanned undersea warfare, that's pretty serious stuff. And there needs to be regulation here. It's just a question of what it is and when it's going to come. But not only should there be standards and oversight by some independent governmental entity, but there also ought to be encouragement for innovation because AI has enormous promise as well as peril. And we ought to try to prevent the peril by having this kind of regulatory regimen that requires testing, red teaming, as it's called by a lot of people, preventing the deep fakes, the hallucinations, uh, the election interference, which is now so imminent, impersonations.
0: Not just imminent, it's uh, happening.
1: It is happening. And so I think there needs to be regulation and uh, basing it on risk, I think is an important point.
0: You've called for some sort of regulatory body that would, I guess, give out licenses to companies that are creating AI. Who is qualified to do that? I I had a conversation with your colleague in the house, uh, Don Beyer of Virginia, who's actually getting a master's degree in machine learning. And he laughed at the idea that anyone in Congress was actually qualified to understand and oversee AI creation.
1: He's right. In fact, uh, we had a forum just very recently involving some of the big tech titans, some of the most responsible and powerful members of the industry. And one of them said during the forums, he said, I'm an engineer. I was the head of one of these companies and I don't understand these algorithms. There is a lot of reason to be cautious here and to empower experts, and that's the reason why we need that independent oversight entity. It shouldn't be done by members of Congress. So who should do it? Well, there are people who are knowledgeable in this area, people who have degrees in computer science or machine learning, and who can assess the risks and design the tests. Sam Altman, whom I've come to know mm-hmm. has some really practical wisdom on this topic. You, you, he you, has, tru-
0: you trust Sam Altman who has a financial interest in AI to to no be the I wouldn't trust
1: dirty? him. I wouldn't trust him to be in the entity. But what he observed is that tests can be designed in very different ways. And he says, and you know the old saying trust but verify that his product, CHAT-GPT, I think it's 5, has passed all these tests where it would be safe and effective, but you want it to go before an independent entity. Analogize it, Lizzie, to pharmaceutical drugs. You don't take Pfizer's word for it. You don't take Merck's word for it. You have the FDA review it for safety and efficacy. Who does the review? Experts do the review. Members of Congress? No. Airline safety, same principle. Car safety, toy safety. This idea is not novel. Consumer protection over products that the ordinary person, and I consider myself an everyday ordinary person when it comes to computer science, I wouldn't be qualified to do it, but there are people who are.
0: Yeah, I mean, ChatGPT GPT thinks I was born in Ohio. I was born in Washington, D.C.
1: And... That's the reason why you want to be cautious and have an oversight entity to review ChatGPT, not take Sam Altman's word for it, not take Google's or any of the other big companies' word for it.
0: Well, let me ask you a question about innovation because when it when it comes to AI, AI requires really two things. It requires a massive amount of computing power and a massive amount of data, particularly if you're talking about large language models or generative AI. And I wonder how that doesn't just give, you know, the biggest 5 tech companies in the world an automatic home field advantage. Like how do you think about this idea of encouraging innovation while also installing safeguards.
1: Really important point and it goes to the core of government regulation in drug safety for example, how do you encourage innovation new drugs if you require all this testing and government bureaucratic rigmarole that new companies have to go through and they have to invest millions of dollars in the kinds of clinical trials that are necessary. Well, the same principle applies here. Innovation could be stifled if the government regulation is too heavy handed and unnecessarily burdensome. So I think it really is a balance that we strike when it comes to new products in other fields as well, when health and safety are at risk. And so a risk-based regimen, which requires licensing and testing not by Congress, not by members of the industry. They, We don't want to delegate it to them to do it. There's some members of the industry who have said, let us do it. We'll regulate ourselves. No, that's not adequate. Sam Altman and the others who are in this field, they have wisdom to impart. They have pertinent insights, but they should not be in charge of their own product review and here's the encouraging part. Yeah. First of all, Josh Hawley and I, again, we may vote very differently. We may disagree on a lot of things. But on this, we agree that there should be government regulation by an independent oversight entity. Call it an office of artificial intelligence. Call it a something different. But it should have that authority to go to court along with individuals, individual rights of action to go to court. I believe state attorneys general should be able to go to court and that these companies should be held accountable when they cause harms. They should have to pay. And I mean, it's a drop in the bucket
0: for them, though.
1: Well, it depends on how big the penalty is. You know, I've been more critical than or as critical as anyone of the lack of effective penalties when it comes to consumer protection. But I think the penalties here ought to be very rigorous, and the enforcement resources ought to be adequate so that this oversight entity can not only review effectively, but also enforce. I'm an enforcer. That's what I did for most of my career as a U.S. attorney and state attorney general. If you don't have effective enforcement, the law is dead letter.
0: I want to understand why Congress cannot seem to pass a privacy law. I, I know that you would like to do that. California has one. There's a lot of, you know, Europe has these. Um, it just seems that a data privacy law would actually encapsulate so many of these issues, and yet it's dead in the water on Capitol Hill.
1: Excellent point. And one of the reasons why a federal privacy bill is difficult is because you have state laws, a number of them, that are already protecting the consumers of their states. And I have said very emphatically, I don't want to dilute or preempt the best provisions of those laws. In other words, I don't think we ought to have a lowest common denominator here And preemption is one of the issues.
0: Well, yeah, but I mean, that would work the same way as CAFE standards from the Energy Department. California has stricter ones than the federal ones. Why couldn't it work like that?
1: It could work like that. We have to get agreement on it. And the issues for some of my colleagues have been whether we're going to have a national standard that is lower, but binding on the states that have already adopted higher standards, I don't want to dilute or take away protection from the states that have already pioneered this effort. And here's the other important point, Lizzie. You mentioned Europe. Europe is ahead of us. Europe is also ahead of us on social media. We cannot allow AI to advance without imposing government regulation. We need to learn the lesson of social media. And we need to do more on privacy. But at the same time, why should Americans have less privacy protection than Europeans? We don't want a lowest common denominator here. And I am pressing for a higher standard because I really believe that Americans should have the gold standard in privacy protection.
0: You have been very generous with your time, but I got to ask you about the film Telemarketers.
1: Congressional action needs to be taken. Um, They would love to act. Patrick, before I leave, I just want to assure you, if there's a need for congressional action, we will propose it. You promise? I have done this kind of work for a long time. I understand. I'm very focused on it. We'll do whatever we think is appropriate. Okay, so we can meet with your staff and present. My staff is right here. They're going to meet with you right now. Thank, Thank you, sir. Okay. Thank you very much for your time, Senator.
0: Thank you, sir. First off, have you seen it?
1: I've seen parts of it.
0: How do you think you come off?
1: You know, I think less important than how I come off is what we need to do about Oh, come
0: on, Senator.
1: <laughs> I think, you know, the approach of these filmmakers in their interviewing style was somewhat unusual. We had a misunderstanding on the timing of how long the interview is going to last, but I really do think that the investigative work has been important, and there's been a lot of other investigative work as well. So I really do think that what's most important is what we do going forward. And I've begun a major initiative asking the Federal Trade Commission, the Federal Communications Commission, Federal Elections Commission, how we can tighten laws so they more effectively protect against the scams and the con artists that that film depicts and that have also been uncovered by other investigative reporting. The New York Times, for example, has done some excellent work. Politico, other media outlets. And I think we've come to a point where we need to focus on telemarketers that exploit the good name of charities and that now use PACs as a means to raise money and profit from consumer deception and misrepresentation. This area really demands some focus. And I've been working on it for a couple of decades now. As Attorney General, we sued a lot of the telemarketers. We tried to educate the public. It's a continuing struggle. And consumers ought to be aware and wary when they get a phone call that it may not be the charity that they think it is and that the telemarketer may be exploiting them.
0: Senator Blumenthal, thank you very much
1: for your time. Thank you. Take care, Lizzie.
0: Richard Blumenthal is a Democratic senator from Connecticut. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Patrick Fort and Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Jonathan Fisher. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio for Slate, and TBD is part of the larger What Next family. We are also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you are a fan of the show, I have a request for you. Join Slate Plus. Just head on over to slate.com/whatnextplus to sign up. All right, we'll be back next week with more episodes. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.